y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. With the delusions that I had anything relevant or original to say, I started writing down my thoughts on the Chinese thought system of Taoism. Eventually, I found I had pages of words with no one to torture them with. So here you are, an innocent bystander that somehow has wandered into my trap. You're not alone, as you shall see. So let's get to the torturing. It's Spun Counter Guy here, and with my good buddy, uh, Brother McWilliams. Howdy. And we're going to do a little experiment. I've written this long, long essay, and I'm going to read it, and Brother McWilliams is going to sit here and drool, because uh, it's going to blow his mind, I'm sure. Exactly. No, he's here to, to ask questions, and maybe just to laugh at me. You wrote this? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you wouldn't have agreed to it? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You thought I was just reading a random essay by some other yeah, guy exactly. smarter than me? Exactly. Lao Tzu said, These are my three treasures. Guard them and keep them. Only he who is empathetic, sympathetic, and compassionate is brave. Only he who is conservative is able to be generous. Only he that refuses to be the center of attention is truly able to be ruler of all rulers. Dao Te Ching 67 I'll go ahead and apologize just the once, but hopefully it'll cover the multitude of times I should apologize for the randomly rambly nature of this essay. Sometimes I read things, which makes me remember other things, so this is a lot of that. Kind of like a pile of sturdy bricks that would probably be more useful in the shape of a house, but at the moment it's just a pile. These thoughts are something I've been adding to over the past few years and probably will continue to add to until some mercenary lops off my fingers with a lock cutter. That really won't stop me from adding to it in my head, but at least my drivel will only be punishment to myself. The story I want to tell is about how my own story has been greatly altered by a thin little book written about a few thousand years ago. Some of the stories are akin to the adventures a prisoner may have in his cell by never leaving his cell, perhaps. Other tales are ones about truly moving along physical roads in an attempt to get at something somewhere settled in my mind. Since I'm no scholar, I'm going to hide behind that excuse when asked why I would ever bother to write on such a heady subject when there are much more qualified minds to do as such. You'll notice that of all the works out there addressing this essay's subject matter, very few are written by those who have no credentials. I'm going to blaze that path now, and I trust that my essay will serve as a prestige booster to the other more well-written qualified books. Okay, now that my apologetic diaper is full up, I feel pretty light and feel free to actually say what I started out to say. Finally. (laughs) The best of folks are like water. Water benefits everything and everybody. Water doesn't compete, it dwells in the lowly places that everyone else looks down on. Thus, it's pretty close to the Tao. Tao Te Ching 8 
Taoism is a wisdom tradition from the great country of China, but to be clear, there's also another somewhat related belief system also called Taoism, which is not the Taoism I'm wanting to get at in this essay. This other Taoism is a patchwork of beliefs from multiple localities in China, which includes tons of gods, epic legends, an obsession of numerology, lucky days and places, how to fight vampires, and also where to shove your furniture in the house. The yin-yang, fishy-looking symbol, feng shui, the yijing hexagrams are all things which probably you see or hear about all the time when talk of Taoism is bandied about in certain circles in the West. In Mandarin Chinese, that Taoism is called Dao Jiao. Dao Jiao. And within the Dao Jiao gets lumped a strand of thought which many scholars feel deserves its own separate study apart from the lucky lotto number vampire furniture placement variety. This is called Yangsheng, and it focuses on health, medicine, and longevity. But the Taoism I want to talk about is in Mandarin called Dao Jia. This Taoism is not totally disconnected from Dao Jiao and Yangsheng in that it has some shared history, text, and imagery, but at least in my and other folks I've chatted with minds, you extract Dao Jia from the other two and never miss them. To many practicing Taoists, this assertion of separateness may be fighting words, and for those folks, you can corner me out in the parking lot after this lecture. All I ask is that your peachwood swords be as sharp as possible to guarantee me clean cuts and hence a quick death. So there's two different? We'll say there's three different Daos. Okay. Like how far apart are they in history? Dao Zhao and the Yangsheng are basically just beliefs that have developed over time. And at one point when China, the way it was told to me, that China wanted to have its own religion because India had Buddhism. So somebody went to the effort of collecting beliefs from all over China and kind of consolidated them into Dao Zhao. And so... That was the original? Well, first of all, we'll get to what the word Dao means, literally. And you can see why they would use this. But it's just local beliefs that someone collected and put that into one thing. Later on, a, a guy named Lao Tzu, who I mentioned before, I'll, I'll talk about him in a second, but he's the one who developed it, this wisdom tradition, and that's what we're talking about. And it's really separate. It really has little to do with these other Daos. But over time, they're all incorporated together to kind of make this cohesive system. Mm. But I will tell you this, every person I met who was into to Dao Zhao knew very little about Dao Jia, other than some names and some maybe some dates or something like that. But when I went to ask hard questions about the Dao Jing, they really knew nothing. And they'd always would say, well, you need to talk to somebody else more qualified. So the Chinese government allows this? <laughs> We're getting to that. Okay. Does that answer your question so far? Yeah, I guess. Okay, cool. For those who have dabbled in Zen Buddhism, the Taoist philosophy, the wisdom tradition, will seem a little familiar. This is because when Buddhism came to China via India, it was heard with Taoist ears and in time became its own animal. It's been called everything from Cha'an to Shaolin to Mahayana, and eventually this strain found its way into Japan, which then became Zen. Ultimately, Zen and Dao Jia have their differences, but again, they have a shared history and approach. The story goes that Dao Jia came about a couple thousand years ago when an old guy was trying to leave his home in what is now called the Hunan province, and back then, you had to go through fortified walls to get from one kingdom to another. The guard at the gate asked him why he was leaving, and he more or less said 
Society had lost its way, and he had had enough. The guard told the old man that he couldn't leave until he wrote down why everything was wrong. Sometime later, the old codger returned with some bundled strips of bamboo that served as scrolls back then, filled with the man's gripes and musings. In fact, pick up that box right there. This box? Yeah. Thank you. People can't see this. I'm opening a little box, and I, I promise you. Wait for something to spring out. Now, this is a... Uh, it's a, obviously not the real one. Yeah, you certainly to read all this? It's a replica that has English on one side and has a uh, Chinese How on the other. How you say that? Dao Da Ching. Say it again? Dao Da Ching. That's pronounced with a D? Yeah, the, the, that's not really the Taoist fault, but when they started to write Chinese into English letters, there was a lot of mistakes made. So the T is actually a D mm-hmm. sound. And the ch is a ch, is jing ch ch. So that's a d as well. Yeah. Down to jing, bada bing, bada boom. And this scroll, it's uh, was bought for me by Taylor, one of my students, who will come up in the story at one point. The guard accepted the scroll and allowed the old man to finally get out of town. The guy got on his ox, headed west, and was never seen or heard from again. It's the mystery of mysteries where this fellow got off to. Some even speculating. He might have went to India to become the Buddha. But if the Chinese drove then like they drive now, with total disregard for traffic lights or pedestrians <laughs> minding their own business on the sidewalks, he was probably just ran over by a chariot as he tried to take a leak off the side of the road somewhere. <laughs> anyway, that scroll became known as the Tao Te Ching, or the Way of Virtue. And the old man we now call Lao Tzu, or Old Master. The word Tao just means way or path. And it's one of those so simple it's hard to explain deals. But it's distinct from the attitudes of the time and even the Tao Jiao as it was concerned with the right way of living and interacting with each other and creation as opposed to concerns over prestige and power. Getting one up on one's neighbor, invading other kingdoms, bribing officials in hell, and petrified lucky pandafoots. Another couple of masters, Lietze and Zhuangzi, came sometime after Lao Tzu and expounded more on this line of thought. Besides often being at odds with its religious namesake, the Dao Zhao, followers of the Dao Zhao would go on to have plenty of scuffles with those having Buddhist beliefs. Buddhist kings, government bureaucrats, and the general public at time found the Taoists irritating to the point of murdering them sometimes, of which there are plenty of stories found throughout Chinese history and literature. But most importantly, Many of its ideas were often in direct contradiction with the eventually prevailing Chinese philosophy of Confucianism. The two wisdom traditions butted heads on several fronts, specifically on matters of language, social hierarchy, and the role of government in the citizens' lives. One can guess that because of the interest of whoever was in charge, be it the emperors of the past or today's Communist Party, Confucianism won out if for anything because its worldview legitimized their authority over people, and thus the philosophy often got official endorsement boosts from the highest places possible. The authority of fathers over children, husbands over wives, sons over mothers, bureaucrats over everyone, etc., probably helped assure Confucius's line of thought would reign supreme in a male-dominated, might-makes-right world. Still, the Taoists held their ground, and you'll find even some stories where Lao Tzu and Confucius supposedly had rap battles of sorts, the, the latter always getting served by the former, at least in the versions of stories that I enjoy. <laughs> According to the Tiananmen Square protester and political prisoner, and ultimately victim of the Chinese Communist Party, Liu Xiaobo, 
who just died a couple weeks ago. Hmm. He said, quote, Both the old left and the new left have again unfurled the banners of Mao Zedong, while old and new Confucianists are again hawking slogans about kingly government. All these groups have taken note of the fashionable ultra-nationalism in society and have draped themselves one way or another in the national flag. Century writer Lin Lutang surmised, quote, After 136 BC, a sharp division was made. Officials like Confucius, while writers and poets like Duangzi and Laozi. But when the writers and poets became officials, they liked Confucius openly and Laozi and Duangzi secretly. Diseases grow little by little, are curable in the beginning, but unstoppable in later stages. And this holds true for everything in life. Baiga, a water conservancy expert in the Warring States period, would plug the ants' holes every time when he walked along the riverbank, for he understood the principle that one ant hole may lead to the collapse of a 250-kilometer-long dike. Wisdom of Laozi. Part 3. So during my first year teaching at a university in China, I couldn't find much of anyone with a passion for Taoism to chat with. My students were all amused, at least, and a little Chinese proud that a foreigner showed so much interest in Lao Tzu and company, but many would finally explain that Taoism was negative or pessimistic in his outlook. A few others encouraged me to be more scientific. I believe in Darwin, or Marxist materialism, was the common concluding phrase. I chilled out for a minute because so many Chinese told me that what I was looking for was probably in Taiwan anyway, it being the so-called rogue province, which because it's its own nation, did not go through the cultural genocide that Mao Zedong had put the mainland through. In the meantime, I did get fascinated by watching from the window of my four-story apartment the old folks who were always out doing Tai Chi. I made a vow to at least try to learn it at some point. Well, my first and only attempt concluded with me falling down on the ground, and I should explain. My first summer in China, I happened to meet a woman, we'll call Annie, close to my age, who spoke excellent English and invited me to have dinner at her home with a friend of hers. The three of us ate a ton of dumplings and some kind of drink that was pitch black and tasted like very old soy sauce. I noticed as the night went on, the more I began to laugh like a hyena. It seemed that the black liquid I was being served was some kind of alcohol. I mean, I thought it smelled spoiled, but heck, a lot of food and beverage smells expired in that country. Anyway, being quite a lightweight drinker, I was pretty drunk before too long. Annie's friend had to get back home, and so she left us. I remember getting a little nervous because Annie was very attractive, and I was wanting to be in right relatedness with everyone, or in other words, not trying to make a pass at a girl just because I thought she was pretty. If I thought we were a good match, as the Chinese say, fine, but I didn't know Annie well enough to make a well-informed judgment. Plus, I was sloshed. Anyway, I suggested we take a walk. During the walk, Annie indicated one of the walls of the alley that we were in was also one that enclosed the temple she worked in. I had assumed the temple was Buddhist, but when she corrected me that it was Taoist, I was like, whoa, I want to go in. It was in the middle of the night, locked up, and she hadn't been given a key. But Annie suggested we scale the wall. I was totally down. We helped each other over without too many scrapes and found ourselves illuminated in the courtyard outside the inner temple. I remember thinking in my drunken state that this occurrence was divine and maybe had a bigger meaning that I would see later. As we strolled around the structure with the Tao Jiao deities, 
in their statue state watching us like high school teachers at a prom, I quizzed Annie about her knowledge of the Tao. She shook her head, looking at me like I was a fool. It was just a museum to something old, but ultimately not real, she surmised. I asked them why she would work at a temple, symbolizing something she found silly and pointless. It paid pretty well, and it was easy, was her understandable answer. But the woman did confess that she practiced Tai Chi. Uh, you gotta teach me, I demanded. So she tried, but as that I was so drunk, I just fell down on the brick ground. When reconciliation is effected between two parties after a great animosity, there is sure to be a grudge remaining in the mind of the one who was wrong. And how can this be beneficial to the other? Therefore, to guard against this, the sage keeps the short-changing portion of the record of the engagement and does not insist on the speedy fulfillment of it by the other party. So, he who has the attributes for the Tao regards only the conditions of the engagement, while he who has not those attributes regards only the conditions favorable to himself. In the way of heaven, there is no partiality of love. It is always on the side of the good men. Tao Te Ching 79 Like any great legend or historical figure, stories have cropped up over time, adding more to the biography of Lao Tzu. Some of the sources, such as the historian Sima Qin, seems possibly legit, while many others seem suspect. Still, there are some great stories, regardless of their validity or not. It is said that Lao Tzu's proper name was Li Art. The Li part was not only the common Chinese family name that you can find in nearly any town in any country these days, but also is the word for plum, which was really synchronicitous because the guy was supposedly born under a hundred-year-old plum tree. So instead of Bruce Lee, it's Bruce Plum? Yeah. Excellent. The R part of his name was the Chinese word for ear. Ring, ring. Hi, can I speak to Plum Ear? Oh, he's not home right now? Well, when you see him, tell him my toilet's clogged up. Hardy har 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 Click. <laughs> Sorry. That was my punny. Yeah, that was... You're quite the Cambodian. Oh! Get it? Yeah. The name given to the sage was so because of his reportedly long ears, which are good luck in China. That reminds me of one time I was in Mexico, and this guy with a monkey on a leash was charging a couple bucks to hold it. I couldn't resist, forking over my dinero only to have the monkey crawl up on my shoulder and pee on me. I protested to the man, showing him the damp spot running down my back. His reply was, Oh, congratulations. It's good looking, Mexico. I bet it was. Maybe Lee R's ears were overdone because his mother carried him in her uterus for 11 months. The excessive gestation period might also account for the white whiskers the baby Lao Tzu sported on his upper lip. Another account has Lao Tzu's mom conceiving him when she gazed at a falling star and then carried him for 62 years, ultimately giving birth to a full-grown man. Who knows? That had to hurt. Yeah. And if that sounds wild, consider that Buddha's mother said she dreamed of a bunch of white elephants marching into her womb, which caused her to conceive. Hmm. <laughs> Sadly, Liar's mama died in childbirth, so a celebration of birth and a funeral were held on the same day. Kind of a yin-yangy thing if you think about it. Liar always had a big thirst for knowledge, 
and over the years would learn from anyone he thought had something relevant to say, be it his grandfather or a contented ferryman to fellow students and any scholar that would give him their time. This is all during the tumultuous spring and autumn period where wars, invasions, regime changes, and a fracturing of the empire was constant and disruptive to the common folks' lives, bringing death and massive population displacement. One story I like goes back to his meeting the wise ferryman. After observing the old man skillfully transporting many folks back and forth across the river, the two got into a conversation where the elder stated without too much emotion that the world had changed, becoming full of greed and violence, which had affected his business adversely. Still, Liar admired aloud the ferryman's seemingly contented state. The old man pointed at some overgrown graves near the river where several generations of his ancestors had been buried, all having been ferrymen and contented with their role in the world. He said, Once my granddaughter, who lives with me, is grown, I'll be quite happy to join my ancestors over there. Death is going home. Poor as he was, the ferryman liked Liar enough to invite him to stay the night at his house, which would keep the seeker safe from all the evil that lurked in the dark in those days. And there at the house, Liar met the ferryman's 14-year-old granddaughter, Rawe. She was a sweet thing and called Liar big brother. Some years later, Liar returned to visit the ferryman, only to find a strange but beautiful woman at the house. Come to find out, it was the now-blossomed Rawe who invited the tired traveler inside to wash up. When inquiring about the ferryman, Rawe reported that her grandfather had just died three days before Liar's arrival. She reported that, quote, On his deathbed, grandfather said we should not fear the end, but see death as rest. He also knew that you would return, and he wished that we would marry. Hmm. Well, with no pressure, I'm sure, Liar considered the ferryman's wishes, and after spending some more time with Rawe, discovered that not only she was a looker, but had all the intellect and understanding poured into her by her grandfather. But not sure as to Rawe's own desire, Liar stated that since she no longer needed to take care of her grandfather, if she had a boyfriend, she should marry him now. Well, the woman confessed that she had only loved one person, and that was Liar. In fact, she had had it bad for him ever since she had met them those many years ago. So they got married. Liar found his way into Rawe, and sometime later, a baby named Zong found his way out, more or less, along the same way, into the world. <laughs> Eventually, the small family moved to Loyang, where after running into some old acquaintances, Liar scored a job as the curator of the imperial archives of the then Zhou dynasty. The scholar found a treasure trove of legendary books, ones he'd never read but had only heard about, and so was as excited as the crackhead in a crack shop. The only downside was, not only were many of the manuscripts in disrepair, but many had been lent out to people that seemed to have no intention of bringing them back. There were records of those who had treated the wares abusingly and also not brought them back, but unfortunately, they were men from powerful families that one had to be careful about calling out. So Liar had to settle for the painstaking task of repairing what scrolls he had left. After some months holed up in the archives, a friend invited Liar to walk about the city, particularly the marketplace. There, the two witnessed some storytellers telling tales that Liar knew had not been recorded in the archive. Also, they found several booksellers selling several classic manuscripts also not present in the archive. So began Liar's additional tasks of writing down unrecorded oral stories 
and buying up as many of the written treasures laying about as his budget would allow. After a few years of fruitful hard work, something devastating happened. A war broke out in the Zhou Kingdom. Long story short, a retreating prince had tricked Liar away from the library one day, and when the old man returned, found the archives had been completely plundered. Disgusted, Liar grabbed his family, exited Luoyang, and headed back to his home village. Sadly, shortly after his arrival home, Rao Wei died. And after a few years after that, Liar was summoned back to the war-ravaged Luoyang and asked to try to restore the archives yet again. Although some manuscripts were lost forever, they being the only copies, eventually Liar got the library back up to snuff again. It was during this time that he began to be known as the Old Master, or, the, or Lao Tzu, because he, by that time, was finally old. You know, because remember, Lao means old, hmm. and Tzu means master. And not far away was rising another master, a guy eventually called Kongzi, otherwise known as Confucius. This master decided to make the trip to Luoyang to gather information on old-timey rituals that, in his opinion, made the ancient kingdoms great and moral. So he showed up at the archives, and when Lao Tzu asked him his reason for being there, Confucius claimed it was to learn from the former's wise ways. Bullcrap, the librarian stated, calling out the latter. You don't agree with my beliefs, and you know it. But in spite of busting Kongza in a lie, Lao Tzu found his doppelganger pleasant enough and not only gave him the ritual info he was after, but also attempted to teach him his take on the Tao. It seems Confucius let Lao Tzu ramble on for days, and at their parting, Lao Tzu concluded with, quote, Man, you got it all wrong, Fushi. If I were you, I'd quit trying to impress these modern-day leaders so you can sway their minds to your way of thinking. If you should actually find a truly righteous one, fine, go for it. Otherwise, I'd quit wasting your time. As the saying goes, wise, wealthy guys hide their wealth. Likewise, wise sage should play dumb. Lose your ambitious pride without slumping into your complacency. And with that, Kongza hightailed it out of Luoyang, having pretty much ignored everything Lao Tzu told him. When Lao Tzu had got the library back up to adequate snuff, he decided to retire and return back to his home village. While there, he was visited by a magistrate of the Kuxian County, who seemed to be one of the few rulers who understood the Tao, and thus his county was thriving while the rest of the country rotted away. The magistrate was there to learn anything more he could from Lao Tzu, and after some days of taking in some instruction, the ruler implored the old man to shine his light on more and more people to hopefully turn the nation back to the true Tao. Obviously a teachable guy, still, Lao Tzu took the magistrate's pleading to heart and began teaching the masses all that he had learned. And it, at least in many of the people's hearts, the Tao took root. But if only the kings were listening, given that the country's problems increased with their further greedy taxation, assassinations, and still more war. Lao Tzu and his students even got word that Confucius had fallen out of favor with the powers that be from just one conversation he had had with one of them. He was promptly fired and had to resort to private tutoring. Lucky he wasn't executed as some other advisors had been. And it was with this backdrop that the by now truly very Lao, Lao Tzu, decided to pack up his ox and head west, shaking the dust from his sandals, as Jesus might have put it. And of course, I've told you that story already. How old was he when he married? I think I heard that he was maybe 20 years older than her. Really? Uh, yeah, that, again, a lot of this is so much a hearsay. And that wasn't uncommon for back then. That was pretty common, really. And even, you still see remnants of it in uh, China today, where a lot of the girls kind of swoon for the middle-aged guys. They have it together, financially. 
you know, they probably have learned a thing or two. They find them really sexy. It seems like a lot of their hot actors are not as much the young guys as they are the, the middle-aged guys. I read a lot of Charles Dickens, and uh, it seems in his books that mothers, like the, the girls would be in their like early, like late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. and they were happy to get an arrangement with some man that would be in his 50s. Right. Because he'd be financially well off and take care of them. Yeah, well, we have to remember, we've had it pretty good where we can marry for love, but the rest of the world and the rest of time, they've married for survival. Right. People obsessed in humaneness may promote humaneness and distort their nature to obtain fame and name. Aren't people of this kind men who incite the world to observe those unattainable doctrines? Drangsa 8. As for myself, back when I was younger and was an idealist in a I want what I think to be the ultimate truth manner, as opposed to here's the truth in spite of what I want it to be, I wasn't all that impressed with the Tao Te Ching. If for anything, it didn't agree with my self-proclaimed noble beliefs. How could they? My bookshelf was filled with books of theory and fiction and contained little or no history books, which recorded the misery and death that followed when my favorite theories and fictions had all been enacted in real life. Never mind all the consequences of well-meaning bad ideas that were visible out my window that shone near my bookshelf. But after being beat down by the reality of human and nature's behavior, and finally giving up on ever being thought of as cool by the cultural hipsters, every time I revisited Lao Tzu's little book, I found it jiving with the reality I'd finally conceded I was seeing, and it shone some light on concepts that still stumped me. All of which was partly what led me to go to work and live in China. The desire to get over there was a long time coming, it beginning with a bunch of dreams that prompted me to begin to devour all things Chinese. I kept putting off the actual going, always finding excuses or opportunities I thought I couldn't pass up. But I suppose God had something else to say about that, and seemingly slammed so many doors shut in my life I pretty much had no choice but to finally go. Looking back now, I know now why I was supposed to go, which are for reasons personal and nearly unbelievable if I told you. And those purposes are still revealing themselves to this day. But again, trying to get at a grasp of this elusive thing called the Tao was a fat one of the reasons I wanted to go. Finding folks in China who knew the Tao wasn't as easy as going to Mecca to learn about Islam or going to Graceland to learn about Elvis Presley. Again, because of its constant ruminations on the destructive meddling in the people's lives by hypocritical leaders, the current Chinese government does not encourage Taoism's study in schools like it does Confucianism. Also, when you consider that all religions are a particular threat to the superiority of Marxist states and their control of the minds of the masses, well then, the Dao Jia, by its association with the Dao Jiao, had a double whammy against it. Ever since the Communist Party took power in 1949, Taoists, along with Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims, were horribly persecuted. Monks were murdered, manuscripts burned, temples tore down, etc. by the government, and its mobs until Mao died in the late 1970s. Yes, do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. The Tao, does that have writings that, I'm assuming, are against authority? and? Yes. Half the book is political, half of it's, say, personal. So, and Confucius is more... 
But let's all get along and hug and be happy. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think he had good intentions, but he definitely was, he thought the way to avoid chaos in the world was authority and order. And eventually I'll get to some of his specific things he brought up, but yeah, that's why if you're in power, of course you're going to say, hey, Confucius is all right. He knew what he was talking about. Right. Because you're in power and right. it legitimize, legitimizes your position. Hmm. Where Taoism was always suspicious and always getting on to leaders. I don't think it was against leadership. It was just saying that they're not as important as they think they are. But in both Tao and Confucius, whatever you say that. Confucianism? Yeah, that's hard for to say. They don't believe in a god or anything, right? It's more of. Well, the Tao Zhao does. That believes on like little gods of like uh, the gods living in the mountains, or there's a creation story and all that. But again, that's that's not the Tao we're talking about. It seems interestingly enough, and a lot of people point this out, including a, uh, a Catholic nun that I interviewed about this, that if it ever says anything about deities, it, it's always one God, mm. or it may say heaven, in a general term. So there's nothing really religious about it. The one way to think about it is kind of like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the in the Old Testament. Right. But even in those wisdom, both of those wisdom books, there is this concept of there is a God and the wise people are the ones who you know fear it or revere it or however you want to say it. Right. It's a little bit that way in Taoism, kind of knowing your place. Okay. Good question, sir. So back to Mao and communism and all that. Things have led up quite a bit since, since Mao died. Uh, things have been relaxed. Uh, even though it's still monitored, Taoism has been able to rebuild itself somewhat in China over the past 30 years. But beyond all the obvious tragedies just mentioned is the gap of time where the oral elements of the philosophy were forbidden to be transferred. Meaning, from 1949 to when Mao died, it, the whole thing was shut down. Mm. And so, a lot of stuff was lost. Who knows how many teachings, parables, and understandings were obliterated by both the genocides of persons and culture, and then the forced silence. Often when I met with those in China who studied the philosophy, they would always seem to preface our talks with that they were just learning about the Tao Zhao themselves via books and felt unqualified to speak intelligently on the elements that could be spoken of. I also found that the younger the Chinese citizen, the less likely they would have either the comprehension skills to even approach this particular tradition or to even care. This could partly be blamed by the country's very propaganda-based education system that retightened considerably after the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre and the subsequent crackdown. The result, I think, could be safely said is that most Chinese aren't given the critical thinking tools needed to decipher the texts, which is already difficult for even the nerdiest scholars, no matter what country they're from. And to be fair, I see that kind of obedient, robot-producing trend creeping in my own country's educational system. Helpless citizens are easier to control, after all. Another obstacle to any seeker of the Tao looking for it in China is that there's a giant lack of interest in Taoism or anything spiritual in the dominant culture at large. Again, partly because of the atheistic heavy-handedness of the government education system and monopoly on the media, but also because of the more recent introduction of a crony state-controlled capitalist system. Any non-political, non-scientific, non-career-oriented thought is seen as a foolish waste of time. China has become a tough country to financially survive in, so it's understandable to see how if something's ultimately not 
money in the bank or a special privilege towards power, what's the point? To give an example of this, there's a somewhat famous Buddhist story about a monk getting chased by a tiger and ending up dead-ended at the edge of a cliff. The monk spies a rope and lowers himself as far as he can go, which still leaves him several stories above a bunch of sharp rocks. The tiger is starting to climb down the side of the cliff, and with his death quickly arriving, the monk notices a patch of strawberries growing within arm's reach. The monk eats them and thinks to himself that they're maybe the, the best strawberries he's ever had. The point of the story could be taken as that the monk would have never gotten to taste the delicious berries if not for the tiger running him down there. One of my students in China told me the story to illustrate how stupid religion was. If only the monk believed in science, he could have flown off the cliff in an airplane. Or, if only the monk trusted the government, one of their tanks would have showed up and shot the tiger, running over its furry head several times with his treads. <laughs> that was really true. Really? Yeah. Anyway, it's difficult to fault the young people for thinking this way, considering that the current Chinese economy is more of a survival of the fittest jungle, or at least a survival of the guy with the most political connections, than any of the whiniest trust fund American activist millennial snowflake could ever imagine. All of this to say, when you talk to today's Chinese about the Tao, it's like everyone trying to remember how grandma made a particular casserole that no one has a recipe for, nor has any interest in eating. So if you're going to look for the Tao on mainland China, the place to be is in Hunan province, and I lucked out by working near the area. It claims to contain the birthplaces of Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi. The former capital of China, Luoyang, is the city where Lao Tzu restored the imperial library and later faced off with Confucius. There's a ton of sacred mountains, including the Shaoshir, where the Shaolin Temple birthed Kung Fu, and a bunch of other Taoist-related stuff. It should be noted, though, that other provinces in China make similar claims to many of these significant Taoist spots. Times are tough, and we all need tourist dollars, I'm guessing. Yes. You mentioned libraries in there. Does China even have libraries? Yeah. They do? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're tightly controlled, of course. Right. But yeah, they do. Huh. I would think they wouldn't. Um, well, they didn't for a while. I, I would, you know, during the uh, Cultural Revolution, when, during Mao's time, most books that were not related to communism or Chairman Mao's own writings were burned or gotten rid of. And you, right. you, being caught with them would get you in some trouble. So, yeah, in fact, pretty much the only book for Chinese was the Little Red Book, which is the book that Mao wrote. So, uh, but no, they, they do have libraries. I've, I've, I went to a few every once in a while hmm. to find something. And you could check stuff out? Uh, yeah, because I was a teacher at the university. Hmm. I went to the university library. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's public libraries. I think I went a handful of times. I don't remember them being that good. Just like any public service, they're kind of dilapidated. But I love bookstores. My favorite bookstores are the ones that are in these tiny little holes in the wall. And you just don't know how they end up with some of the books. But you can see some clearly that predated the Cultural Revolution. And you're just lucky to see them. Sometimes you just want to hold them to think, man, how did this book survive? Mm-hmm. I have one, I think. Uh,
The Prince of Handan loved doves and setting them free so much it became a tradition on New Year's Day for people to catch doves and give it to the young man. He often rewarded them generously. Eventually, a brave soul asked why the prince loved setting the birds free. He said, because I want to show my kindness. The brave questioner twisted his face in irritation. Your subjects are out running around catching doves just so you can set them free, and a good amount of the birds die in the process. Your kindness can't make up for the damage you do. If you really want to show kindness, forbid the people from catching the doves in the first place. The prince agreed with the brave soul. Lietze. To get to my next Taoist adventure in China, I should back up some. In my first month in the Middle Kingdom, I had been invited by a Thai woman named Lanhua, who lived downstairs with her British husband and two children, to attend an English corner. This is a major event in China, where usually in public parks, Chinese students go to practice their English. Generally, they get stuck having to talk to each other since a lot of areas in China have few or no foreigners, or at least sometimes there's no Westerners who want to attend, as you will might understand why in a minute. On the bus heading over, Lan Hua introduced me to two students at our university, their English names being Peter and Megan. I found out later that Lan Hua's eldest daughter had given these students English names, they of course being born with Chinese ones. The two were nice enough, but I was tired. It was Sunday morning, and they asked me too many questions. I would find out later that in both Megan's and Peter's cases, I was the first native English speaker they had ever met, and so they were eager not to let the opportunity go to ask all the questions they'd saved up in their respective 18 years on this life. On top of that, they were particularly excited because I was from America, the birthplace of everything from Hollywood to Michael Jackson to freedom of speech. I thought the two were great friends, but again, I would find out later that they were actually somewhat rivals in that their command of English was some of the best on the university of however many thousand. Anyway, if I found them a little annoying on the bus, they were nothing compared to what occurred at the Peony Park English Corner. I was mobbed by about 30 Chinese children and teenagers, all asking their questions at the same time. Hello, how are you? Where do you come from? Do you like Michael Jackson? Do you like China? Do you think Chinese girls are beautiful? Why does America keep China from destroying the horrible Japanese? Really? Uh, those are all real questions. <laughs> As I tried my best to answer the questions while at the same time teach those present the beauty of taking turns, not talking over each other and not pushing and shoving, I would occasionally catch a glimpse of Megan on the outskirts of the crowd grinning. She was looking after me, though still was enjoying watching my being overwhelmed by what must have seemed to her stupid and pointless questions. After about 30 minutes of answering the same questions over and over, I looked over to Megan and mouthed, help me. In the girl came, barking orders for everyone to leave me alone while pushing through the tangle of bodies until she got a hold of my arm. Pulling me out, she announced that I had to go, and we quickly fled to a bus stop, Lam Hua and Peter chasing after us. We all went back to the campus and ate lunch at a noodle shop. I remember Megan annoying me again because she criticized the way I used my chopsticks. You're holding them wrong, she claimed. If the food gets into my mouth, then it's right, right? No, she insisted. I thought to myself that this girl is really annoying. <laughs> little did I anticipate that she would soon become a dear little sister to me, we both getting each other out of jams, sharing tears, and helping each other grow up. My favorite annoying thing about Megan is that every time she came to visit me at my apartment, I would have to mop the floor. 
After about three months of this, I asked the girl, when you come to visit me, do you deliberately walk through all the mud you can? <laughs> she was at first embarrassed by this, but later admitted she had never realized that she didn't watch where she stepped, ever. Peter would become my other dear friend in China, and as I reflected on this chance meeting some months later, I would remember that the night before the first English corner, I was terribly lonely and confused by the country at large and asked God to send me a friend. God's a generous guy. He sent me too. So later that summer, I had visited Megan's home village and her family, and a Taoist opportunity finally showed itself. But, and fittingly, I would learn again that patience and being able to roll with the punches is key to any endeavor in China, as much as it's a key to understand the Tao. Well, there's a lot more to both my ramblings and adventures, which we'll keep for another day. Until then, thanks for hanging with us. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name Spun Counter Guy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Thank you.